Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Giants Among Men. It's just Brian today. Scott is missing. Um, it's going to be one of these weird ones where it's just one of us. We know you hate them. We hate them. It's awkward. But sometimes life gets in the way. Things happen. Um, and so you're going to suffer through it. I'm going to suffer through it. Um, and we'll do this together for an hour. And uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll talk through a few things. Um, first thing I wanted to start off with is the Giants. Um, we spend probably too much time talking about the Giants on this show because they stink and they're generally worthless. Um, but we try to talk ourselves into it. We try to talk you guys into it. Um, we're trying to talk the whole world into caring about the Giants still. And they've had an offseason where suddenly people are finding cause to care about them again. Um, and look, the Giants did everything that could have been asked of them this offseason. They got rid of Dave Gettleman. They got rid of Joe Judge. They've turned things over. They hired, you know, an attractive new head coach. They have an interesting offensive coordinator. They have now an interesting defensive coordinator at the hiring of Wink Martindale today um, after, you know, Patrick Graham decided to move on, which is sort of an interesting move in its own right. Um, you're hearing them say mostly the right things. I think there was, they did get the message that it had gotten so bad they had to make some drastic changes. Um, and, you know, they're getting a kudos for it. Um, and I guess they should. You know, I would just caution everybody from going too far in that direction you know like it's nice it's good I think you know there's reason to be excited about Brian Dable and Joe Shane Joe Shane seemed like a really bright guy the kind of guy that I w would have liked to see them hire you know coming from a good organization then they get um, the Chiefs quarterback coach and Mike Kafka the kind of guy that you would like your offensive coordinator to be coming from the Chiefs working with Andy Reid runs a modern offense like all sounds, you know, nice and good. But, and, and look, no one, we want, we don't want to feel depressed all the time about the Giants, right? So if you're a Giants fan or a Giants blogger or, you know, you run a Giants site or a Giants podcast and you, you don't want to be just crushing them all the time and talking about how terrible everything is. So we're going to get excited. Hey, they did what we wanted them to do. They did what we need to do. You know, I would just caution, like, you know, they didn't wave a magic wand and fix everything. And, you know, even with the good, you know, they hired Brian Dable and in the process, you know, got themselves sued um, by Brian Flores for racism um, in the hiring practice and got exposed that, you know, Bill Belichick seemed to have an inside track over who they were going to hire and... You know, it's really all kind of cloudy and weird. Um, how did he know that? Who did who did tell him that? <laughs> um, you know, that's not a one. You know, it's not a great look for the franchise to uh, the fact that they are perhaps conducting sham interviews with minority candidates. It's also not a great look that Bill Belichick maybe knows who the Giants are going to hire ahead of guys that they're interviewing. Um, you know, and it's not clear who, the, it really isn't clear who that is. Is it the Maras? Like, John Mara supposedly was the, the highest on Brian Flores and and even had, you know, intermediaries reaching out to him before um, 
before hiring the GM, which theoretically he shouldn't be doing because the GM was supposed to make that hire. So that's a little unusual. And apparently his nephew was, you know, through back channels, finding out, um, reaching out to Brian Flores and letting him know the Giants were interested. But, you know, the flip side, the positive, they didn't hire Brian Flores, I guess. And that's, you know, John Mara, and which what I think is true, he does let the GM make the call. And maybe he does have he did like the idea of flores and he was interested he wanted to make sure they were going to interview him and he wanted to put his thumb on the scale a little bit to make sure that an interview was conducted with him but ultimately he let shane hire the guy he wants and maybe that's all good um i think you can look at it both those ways um but i you know i think it's too soon to kind of be like super excited for anything the giants are doing i think it's still warranted to take every move they make with a pretty much a grain of salt and be deeply skeptical of them. You know, this has been a really long time that they have been in the wilderness now. And it's not, um, there's nothing wrong with everybody keeping their skeptic hat on about everything they do. And, you know, I, I think I'll say, want to talk with Scott about this more because I think the Brian Flores situation is super interesting. Um, and you know, it's what makes these, it's a perfect test case for this kind of thing. Like the giants, you may say it's unfair to, you know, I know Tiki Barber was emotional calling, saying the Maras aren't racist and, you know, taking issue with Stephen A. Smith kind of attacking the giants. And, you know, I can understand these things make us all defensive, but the giants are in many ways, the perfect, you know, team to pursue because they point out the problem. The Giants aren't racist with a capital R. You know, John Mara is not, you know, twiddling his mustache and and refusing to hire a black coach. But the Giants, I have no doubt, I really do believe this. If, If there's two coaches standing in front of them and they're both equally qualified and they're torn, the Giants are going to pick the white one nine out of ten times. Not even knowing they're doing it. Not even consciously. Just because... You know, for them, that's what a head coach looks like. And that feels there's some there's a comfort there that this is who they want in the building. Brian Flores, you know, that whatever it is, there's a discomfort that they might feel. And they decide, you know what, we're going to go with Brian Dable. Uh, You know, they get his family in there. There's a feeling like this is how this stuff works. And it's why it's so insidious and why a lawsuit like this does make sense, because sometimes it's like, you got to force the issue, and I don't know what the, the, the answer is. You know, the Rooney Rule, for all its well intentions, is like seemingly a disaster because it sets up this exact problem. All that seems to happen is these teams conduct these sham interviews, and it leaves everybody feeling miserable. Brian Flores, you know, has to go through this dog and pony show of interviewing and give, putting his be- best foot forward when he's getting a text that he's already not a real candidate. And he has to seemingly do that for multiple teams. Um,. You know, so, but, so I don't know that there's a rule that can be put in place and maybe it's just litigation that just shames the NFL and already, look, the Houston Texans were going to make an indefensible hire for Josh McCown, who has no experience, and they turn around and they hire Lovey Smith. And, you know, if, if, if it's a purely cynical calculation they made there, hey, like, then what he's doing already is bearing fruit. Like, he's putting pressure, applying pressure, because it's like the only way, like, public shaming might be the only way. 
Like, I don't know. There's, there's no rule. Nobody did anything wrong. The Giants have the right to choose the head coach that they so please. But if you don't apply pressure, it's going to keep being a white guy because it's just, you know, the Giants have had no black quarterbacks. They had Geno Smith played one game. That's it. And do I think that when the Giants are evaluating quarterbacks that they cross the black ones off the list and say, not for us? No. But I can tell you when Lamar Jackson was up, I knew the Giants were not going to draft him. And again, not because I think that they're, you know, openly racist. They just weren't. There's a discomfort there. They weren't going to do it. Daniel Jones, oh, we like him. You know, and they're not saying it. We like that, But, you know, it's there. It's there. When Kyler Murray was out, the Giants... They're not, they're not moving up to take him. And I knew it. And I would say, oh, they're, they're conservative. You know, they're, they're risk averse. Like, it, it is what it is. They're not doing it. And, and again, it would take, you know, the right quarterback who was undeniable. Then the Giants, you know, I, I think there, you know, there are black quarterbacks in the NFL that the Giants would draft, I think. You know, but I think, again, if it's two equal ones that they like equally... By not again, not consciously, that they're gonna pick a white quarterback. Like, you know, Dwayne Haskins, Daniel Jones, those were pretty equal. You know, the Giants went with Daniel Jones. I'm not saying it's not because Dwayne Haskins is black and they per- turned out to both be bad, but if you think that that played no role, no role in that selection, I think you're being naive. And I again, I don't know the answers. These are thorny issues, like. You can't, no one's doing anything wrong. You can't, it's hard to just mandate these things. But I do think, you know, public pressure, public shaming, maybe that is the answer. Maybe you just force the issue enough until people finally go, all right, we know what, we're, we got to do this. Eric Bieniemy's got to be a coach. Um, you know, Byron Leftwich has got to get a job. Like you just, you just force it. And I think, you know, that's probably what Brian Flores is feeling. That's what he's trying to do. And maybe it's already bearing fruit and maybe it won't work out for him. And looks like he might not get a job, and he certainly put himself in the crosshairs, and it probably is gonna, you know, keep him from getting a job. But I, I, I you know, it's hard not to applaud the guy or root for the guy, because it's obviously a problem. Again, I don't know the answer, but like to deny it's an issue or that it's just fake is just ridiculous. Like, it, it's there. There's no doubt about it. And the Giants, again, to me, are the perfect team because they're not doing anything wrong with a capital W. They're not crossing black candidates off the list because they don't trust, you know, they're not saying racial epithets. There's no, they're not even doing it intentionally. That's what he means by systemic. It's a systemic problem. It's unconscious bias, all that stuff, all those lingos that we don't like and aren't fun to talk about, but exist and are real. Um, And so, you know, as you try to feel good about what the Giants have done this offseason, you can and all that, but it's like, don't look over the fact that you know, there's there's some weirdness in this Giants offseason, and it's not all excitement and let's get to the draft and, oh, here's this new glorious era of Giants football. Um, you know, but it, it look, again, you can't be unhappy with, with how they've handled this offseason. They did everything we all wanted them to do. At least we have a fresh start this year. Um, and, you know, we get a chance to maybe turn this around. And, you know... Hopefully, because we're getting ready for the Super Bowl, guys, and it's a week away, and by the time you're listening to this, it'll be a day away, and it's been a long time since the Giants, 
not only have played in the game, but have been even in in the running. <laughs> and I'd like that I'd like to be where we have a chance, where we're in the mix, in the conversation. That was more fun. Because this Super Bowl is a pretty interesting one. And the lens I'm gonna talk about, you know, again, this other thing I kinda wanted to talk to Scott about, um, but you'll just have to hear me ramble about it, is you know, I think this game is a lot, you know, about the Rams and Matt Stafford in particularly and what that means for him. Um, I think it's an entry, such an interesting case of this guy who was super talented and he went to this terrible organization and had some success and, you know, but mostly not. They didn't make the playoffs a lot. They were mediocre most of the time and he had good numbers, but not always great numbers. But, you know, all his defenders of like, he doesn't have this and he doesn't have that. And this is a terrible organization. And, you know, you know, there's people who say Matt Stafford belongs in the Hall of Fame even before this year, which seemed crazy to me. But like, look, he is super talented and, and he's gotten this opportunity to go to a team that is loaded with talent. And here he is in the Super Bowl and he gets to kind of write his own narrative of like, yeah, that that thing is true. I was that good and I was stuck in this um, terrible situation. And had I not been, had I been in a better one? Maybe this could have uh, this could have been me more often, um, because but it's fascinating because like you look at quarterbacks and Super Bowls, and it's how we evaluate them, and it is it is really remarkable. Um, you know you kind of have Tom Brady who you separate he's just different it's just you can't even compare it. But you look at all these great quarterbacks who you know they don't win the Super Bowl every year like. The Packers have had Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers for 30 years and won two Super Bowls, which is amazing. I mean, the Giants won the same amount of Super Bowls in that era. Now, the Packers have been better. They've won more games. They've been to the playoffs more times. They've had more fun. I'd rather have them have that last 30 years than what the Giants have had. But it is the same amount of Super Bowls. Um, And it's not altogether different. And like... You know, how we evaluate these quarterbacks, the situations they get in. It, you know, there's the guys at the top where it's super clear. There's the Peytons, you know, the Rodgers, the Bradys, that they are a step above. And then there's these guys in, you know, the next tier where it's not so clear. You know, Matt, how good is Matt Ryan? How much better is Ben Roethlisberger than Phillip Rivers? You know, where is Matt Stafford? You know, is Kirk Cousins, is he like nothing? You know, where where does that go? You know, and it's, I think it's like super interesting. And Matt Stafford is this really super interesting test case. On the other hand, like, you know, again, we're not totally going to get an answer because this Rams team is loaded, you know? And, and so what is the, this, you know, Jared Goff took this, took a Rams team to the Super Bowl. Like, well, as good as this one, but what would they look like with him this year? Like, you know it's super it's it's really interesting and i'm interested in it because obviously the giants you know we've had eli manning which is one of the most unique careers i think of all time where the the highs were high the lows were low like you know i could totally understand people who say he wasn't as consistently good as even a matt stafford was or a matt ryan um and you know but then when you try to make the kind of arguments you know that people make about a quarterback who they say got carried to the Super Bowl it doesn't really work with Eli because he just wasn't he wasn't on those kind of teams you know the 2007 Giants for all the 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 vaunted pass rush that was a middle of the road defense that season 
They didn't have Tiki Barber that year. They had two young running backs who were okay. They had an offensive line that was solid, if unspectacular. You know, they had nice weapons, but not, you know, they didn't have, they weren't loaded. It wasn't Randy Moss and, you know, Wes Welker. It wasn't Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham. Like, it wasn't an amazing team. 2011 Giants weren't even any good. It was a bad team. <laughs> Carried by Eli. How many, if you think Kirk Cousins could take the 2011 Giants to the Super Bowl, you're nuts. And, you know, there's guys that, like, I could see where someone might even say, like, you know, Eli is really not even that much better than a Jimmy Garoppolo. But you know what? Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't won two Super Bowls, and he won't. He won't. I'll tell you right now, he won't. Like, so for all, Eli is in this category of his own, like... You want to say if Matt Stafford wins this Super Bowl, is he better than him? You know, I mean, what difference? What like, what difference almost does it make? What do you get having a Matt Stafford who, if you say to me he's three percent better, but so what? When he was one of bad team, he he had bad results. When he's been on a great team, he had great great results. And so this idea that you know Eli was somehow carried by the, these Giants teams that were loaded one just not true. And now we've also learned. You know, the Giants organization is maybe closer to the Lions than it is to, you know, the Steelers, the Packers, the Patriots, right? How have they been since Eli's departed? How have things gone? Like, could maybe he maybe he was more Matt Stafford elevating a lousy organization and making it look good and oh his numbers didn't look so great because maybe things around him weren't so great. Maybe maybe that's more the case. Like we don't know. So it is really hard. Um, you know, again, there's that tier of like the, the real, you know, the top 10 all time, right? Where you're talking about the Elways and the Joe Montana's and, you know, Brett Favre and those guys who are super clear. Um, you can probably put Drew Brees into that camp. But, you know, then there's the other guys. Um, where it really, you know, it, we don't, we probably will never know, you know, who, whose situation was actually better. Um, and yet, I do think for Matt Stafford, you know, this game becomes all about him in a way that's really tough, you know, like, he's going to have a lot of pressure in this game, like, he, they have everything. If you are the guy that, that your defenders have said you are, like, you should win this game. You have the better team. A team's loaded. And if I'm him, the worst guy you want to see is Joe Burrow, who comes in with no pressure, with, you know, a young guy, second year, already in the Super Bowl, miracle run, it's all in front of him. Um, he feels he's going to have many more chances. He's playing with house money. You know, you couldn't have a more opposite matchup at that position, where one guy, it's like his whole legacy is on the line, the other guy... He elevates himself into this stratosphere, but if he doesn't, if he loses, you know, it's just all gravy. It's all in front of him. Um, he doesn't have that pressure at all. Um, so it's going to be a fascinating game um, from that perspective. Um, and I hate, you know, I hate doing that. I hate making it all about one player because that's never fair. And look, it's one game. If Stafford goes out there and has a bad game, looks up sometimes that just happens. But it's not going to be the way it's going to be remembered. You know, this because this is a you got you wanted this. You came to this team. They are loaded. They are ready to win. 
you have everything you could want. You have the better team. You have defense. Like, you got Aaron Donald, Von Miller, Jalen Ramsey on defense. Everything you could need on offense. Coach with system that, you know, suits your talents and ready-made. So, you know, if Matt Stafford turns it over a few times and they are, they lose this game, you know, it's hard for him to rise above that kind of category that he's been in of, you know, one of these uber-talented guys who's just not quite on that, you know, special level. Um, and he's an interesting guy. He's super talented. There always has seemed to be something missing there. Um, and I don't know. For some reason, I'm not really rooting for him. I don't know why. I guess it's my Eli defensiveness somehow. You know, I know people are going to start saying that, oh, he's better than Eli and... and um, maybe it's not about Eli at all. And I'm making it about it because I care about Eli <laughs> and Giants fans when you're defensive because, yes, Eli sometimes was terrible and looked terrible. But it has led to him not getting a lot of respect because um, I really think if you go back and evaluate those 2011 Giants, it's really hard to take that season away from him. There's just not that many guys that could have dragged that team to the Super Bowl. Um and it wasn't like they beat, you know, it was a weird year where there were no good teams. They beat a 15-1 and team led by Aaron Rodgers. They beat a really good 49er team on the road. And then they beat Tom Brady and the Patriots. So there's just not a lot that you can, you can take away from um, that. And, you know, I guess that's what the Giants fans were going to be doing for the end of time is turning everything into a defensive Eli Manning, even, no matter how irrelevant it seems to be. But uh, we'll shift away from football. I think that's enough football for now. Um, we've got the trade deadline coming up this week. Knicks look like a struggling, floundering Knicks team um, that I've been defending most of this year. I still do. I think the Derrick Rose thing is not getting enough play, how much that's hurt this team. I think you could argue he's their most important player. Um and without him, you know, they missed him in a lot of games. And with him, look, I'm not saying they're a contender, but maybe they're still around 500. They're still in the mix for the play-in. And we're looking to make a trade that, that bumps the needle a little bit, gets you into the play-in. I think making the playoffs would, be, would have been a great accomplishment for this team two years in a row. Um, I think if you're trying to find the silver lining of this season, it's R.J. Barrett. Had a huge game the other night against the Lakers. Um you know, and look, if he could average, if he could keep what he did in January, where he was over 20 points a game, around 44, 45% shooting, near 40% from three, um, if he could do that in February, if he could do that in March, finish the year like that, you can salvage this season. Because it's been, it's been, it's been depressing. You know, the Julius Randle thing has gotten so bad. Um, you know, now he's snapping at video assistants. Um, and yet, you know, has played a couple of good games in a row. Like, it, but he's created this situation where it just feels like this urgency now to get rid of him versus like, oh, hey, he's not quite, you know, somebody you build a whole franchise around, but he's, he's a nice interim building block to, to now it feels like, no, oh, they got to do something. You know, that's been the terrible part. Um, and I don't know what they're going to do. Like, you're starting to hear these C.J. McCollum rumors um, and maybe putting Randall in that deal, um, you know, which would be, that would be extreme, right? Like, that would be, you know, 
a lot to um that would be a big change you know and i cj mccollum if you could get a cj mccollum with randall and then rj and add him to our current team yeah that'd be great like to take randall off you know the thing i'm starting to start i love obi the fans we all love obi it would be fun to add cj mccollum put him in that starting lineup with obi but the one thing is is that tom thibodeau does not like obi like let's face it <laughs> he doesn't like him he doesn't think he's good like the defense he just can't get past it so like would he they trade randall does obi just go into the starting lineup like is that what happens or does he do something else like is he putting taj in the starting lineup <laughs> and or playing some kind of small like fournier and grimes um i don't even know with rj at the four um and obi off the bench still like um i don't know you know like i don't see him though just like giving obi all of those minutes and that's the team um and i'm torn on that because i really like tibbs i think he is keeping us much more afloat than people even realize i totally support him i get people's frustrations with him but i still think he's the right guy for the job and but i love obi like us all he's so fun he seems to make so much happen i i it does i don't totally get why he can't be utilized a little bit more but on the other hand i get it man the defense like sometimes he's you're like you can't believe it you know his defense and he can't hit threes so he's really limited as an offensive player like when you're getting out of transition it's so fun it looks so exciting but when you're not he's bricking threes it's hard to get him the ball and he doesn't play great defense and so not even that great defense he's bad on defense so i get where a guy like tibbs he's just like i just don't i can't play this guy um and you know that does make you wonder if there is this little disconnect between the front office and the coach i mean it's hard to imagine they hired the coach they all talk um but you know here's a guy they drafted high and the coach doesn't seem to like him and then they go trade for cam reddish and again the coach doesn't seem to like him um and again I get both sides of this one. I get where the fans want to see Cam Reddish because he's a former lottery pick and he's new and he's shiny and we haven't seen him and maybe he's good. But, you know, he, he isn't good. <laughs> In Tibbs' defense, he's not good. He's like, we traded Knox and a draft pick for, like, more Knox, for, like, extra Knox, you know? Like, we still have Knox. I, we can't get Knox off this team somehow. Um, we're doomed to Knox forever be debating Kevin Knox for the rest of our lives now we don't even have Knox and yet we still have Knox because <laughs> I'm really tired of hearing about Cam Reddish Cam Reddish isn't good guys like he's talented I guess you know I, I see it he's looks he's, he's a better looking athlete than than Knox he's got more moxie than Knox it's almost bad at least Knox had the decency to kind of know he wasn't any good Cam Reddish sort of walks around like he's amazing and then you watch him play and you're like no you're not um you know I got some decent minutes uh, against Utah on Monday night I, you know didn't think he looked very good 
Um, you know, this guy shoots under 40% for his career. I know he's still a young guy, but he's gotten pretty good opportunities. The Hawks, you know, I know they were a little logjammed at that position, but, like, he couldn't break out of it. You know, there's always this, like, oh, you're getting this high upside. It's like, okay, but, you know, usually you don't reach the upside. Like, it's hard to do. Um, and I, I don't really see it. So I, I'm not trading guys around just to get Cam. I'm really tired of hearing about Cam Reddish, okay? Like, if he plays, great. If he doesn't, fine. He hasn't earned it at all. So there's nothing wrong with Tibbs being like, I'm not playing him yet. Um, when an opportunity is there, sure. They should get him in there. Fine. But there's no... You cannot blame a coach for not wanting to play a bad player um, just because he's young and a little more interesting than what they currently have. That's not how these guys think and it doesn't make any sense for them to do that um but i do think there's i do think they're going to do something at this deadline i could see it being a small bore um you know and alec burks seems like it would make a lot of sense on the other hand what would they do without alec burks you know like kemba walker should absolutely be traded but is there any market for him that makes any sense i don't know if you could package all three of them with fournier um you know, I think those are definitely things they should explore. Trading Noel makes a lot of sense, um, given the way the season's going. So a lot of stuff they could do. It's really hard to know what they're actually going to do. And by the time you're listening to this, we probably will have seen what they're going to do. So you tell me if they did anything smart or good. Um, but they're in, you know, a super weird spot where there's a lot of stuff they could do. They could do nothing. Um they, and they don't want to do anything rash. You know, the worst thing you can do in the NBA is make a panic move. Um, you know, the thing I always say is that the NBA is just so hard. It's so hard to win. It's so hard to win in the NBA. And, like, all you have to do is look over. Look at Brooklyn. They've lost nine straight. <laughs> they traded two years ago. They added Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. Like, They've won absolutely nothing since that happened. They lost in the second round of the playoffs and now are on a nine-game losing streak after acquiring those three players. Like, there is no guarantee in the NBA. It is so hard. The Lakers added have LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook, and they are a below 500 team. Like, it's really hard to win in the NBA. The Oklahoma City Thunder, once in consecutive drafts, drafted Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Serge Ibaka, and never won anything. Like, it's really hard. You have to get this perfect mix of players. The Milwaukee Bucks were nothing forever, and then, you know, miraculously, you know, got Giannis and turned it around. But even then, was, you know, had to get all this luck to actually win that championship. The Sixers, for all the talk, the process, and then it worked. And, oh, they got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and Fultz and these number one picks in a row. And, oh, they're on. And Fultz turned out to be a bust. Ben Simmons is now not playing. They have to trade him. They've still never won anything. I don't think they've made a conference finals since, you know, the end of the, the, the building part of the process. It is so hard to win in the NBA. So, you know, sometimes you have to just take having a mediocre team it's more fun than being totally lousy and the knicks are still you know there's exciting pieces there's interesting players rj is taking a leap he's still only 21 years old he's a borderline star he could maybe you know a little bit better or he's a trade you know i think 
There's a lot of different things they can do. We don't have to get that sad and depressed about the Knicks, even if this season has been super disappointing and not at all what anyone hoped after last year. And, you know, it may get worse this month. They got a really tough February. Um, but, you know, maybe we could get a little jolt of life at the trade deadline. I just, you know, like a CJ McCollum, I would caution against something like that. That's a super expensive player. He's 30 years old. Don't really see the fit there. Um, and doesn't really move the needle enough, I don't think. Um, although I would just be so curious to know how they expect, how they look to play. Um when he if he if he arrives i don't know how real that is it seems like there's a little bit of smoke there um but so they're still in a in a super interesting place um as we approach the deadline we'll see we'll see what we have almost season left half a season left um you know it's gonna be interesting um so one other changing gears again it's an interesting topic i have another one that really i should wait for scott but i'm gonna just get into it the Pro Bowl happened over the weekend, the in-between, and you get all these people. I don't. I really am baffled by Pro Bowl All-Star Game discourse and why. Like, there's so many complaints about the quality of the Pro Bowl and the All-Star Game, and the guys don't play hard, and why is that? And it's because they're pampered young athletes. And Deion Sanders had some comments about the Pro Bowl, how in his day they went there to prove something and they competed. And one, people have been making, have been bitching like this about the Pro Bowl for my entire adult life. I'm 41 years old. I've been hearing this forever about how the modern athlete doesn't care about these games. Why would, they're just meant for fun. Watch them or don't watch them. Who cares? What do you, what, who cares? I don't get it. What do you work for the NBA? Like, it's, it's something to have on the Pro Bowl. I was sitting in a sports bar having dinner with my family and it was on and I watched it. And it, one, it rates perfectly fine. It does perfectly well. It's sort of fun. Mac Jones did a dance. Who cares? Who cares? Why, why would you have any expectation turning that game on that there's going to be, they're going to be laying their blood and guts on the field? It's an exhibition game. These are millions, they have millions of dollars at stake at football. If anyone tears an ACL, do you know what a disaster it would be to have a guy suffer a really bad injury at the Pro Bowl? Like, who wants that? Who wants to see Kyler Murray tear his ACL in the Pro Bowl? Like, what are you talking about? And I just don't get... I'm old enough now where I could be coming an old man. And it is a very interesting thing to watch people go into old man mode and start acting like they grew up in a time they didn't grow up in. Like Deion Sanders is the epitome, is a godfather of the modern athlete. Like Dion, Neon Dion, prime time, high stepping, didn't like to tackle that much made a lot of business decisions about tackling, was not a physical player at all. And he was one of the greatest players ever. He's one of the greatest cover guys of all time. There was a weird time when it felt like whoever had Deion Sanders when he was going between the 49ers and the Cowboys would win the Super Bowl. He he was like the most valuable player in the league, it felt like, for a three, four-year stretch. He was not a physical player. Didn't like to tackle. Like, he is a modern athlete. People said this same stuff about him. Who is he kidding? 
And you'll hear lots of athletes. Sometimes you'll hear Randy Moss talk like that. Like, are you joking? You, know, you were kicked out of multiple colleges. You had to go to Marshall. You came into the league. You dropped to 21st because there were all these issues about you. You are a modern athlete in every sense. You hear Shaq talk this nonsense sometimes. Shaq was making movies and starring in Kazam and making rap videos. And people criticized him. He didn't work hard enough. He was out of shape. You are a modern athlete in every sense of the word. So, like, it's so weird to me to have these guys now, who I watched as get take this kind of crap from an older generation, turn into that older generation it is so weird to me. Like, you are... You are that thing. What are you complaining about? <laughs> I don't get it. Like, I, I don't know. I You know, even you hear some people grew up, like, I am that uh, I'm not a millennial and I'm not Gen X. I'm whatever that Xennial is, whatever we're called, where I grew up without computers. And, like, I didn't have phones and, and we didn't have internet. And we, we, but, but, and, and we supposedly, like, our parents let us go out and, just roam the streets and i'm like I, I get that a little bit but people are so overstating that we were like my parents were around you know like i wasn't just going wherever the hell i wanted after school like i went to sports you know we had nintendo a lot of kids played video games we watched a lot of tv like a lot of tv i don't know what people what childhood they had where they were just out in the dirt rubbing sticks together we watched tv we played nintendo we played sega genesis i don't look at my kids and judge them and go they're having this like fundamentally different childhood than i had I, they're doing a lot of the same stuff i did we go to the park like they're not sitting on a cell phone all day they're six and ten like, what are you talking about so we just it's like everybody everybody seems to put themselves like you didn't all grow up in the 1950s like what what is this America that you guys grew up in? You're not that old, right? Like Deion Sanders, you are, you know, you're Jalen Ramsey. There's no difference between the two of you, how you approach the game and life. And like, if anything, modern athletes work harder. Like I was watching, they had a great documentary on the 86 Mets on ESPN and the sheer, the most mind-boggling thing about that team was the partying. And I know guys party now. But they, and these guys are, he's smoking cigarettes in the dugout. And I guarantee you Keith Hernandez acts like, oh, in my day, we really worked hard. Do you know how much harder Major League Baseball players work today than you did? They're working out constantly. Their diets are, you know, set by nutritionists. Tom Brady hasn't had... A piece of cheese in probably 20 years. He hasn't had a Coke. You're drinking beer in the dugout. You're doing cocaine every night. When the last time you think LeBron James went out and did cocaine? Probably never in his life. Like, they, they work harder now than you did. So this, like, sitting on the porch, I just find it so baffling to me. What generation did you grow up in? What are you talking about? Everybody wants to turn themselves into like the greatest generation and, you know, act like they all fought World War II. You didn't. You're the same. The Pro Bowl has sucked for a long, long time and it should. It's a ridiculous game. They probably shouldn't play it because the risk of injury is absurd. 
remember the one time the guy got hurt in the beach Pro Bowl game, and it was a catastrophe. Guy had a whole career ahead of him. Hurt himself in a beach football game at the Pro Bowl. That should never happen. So the idea that these guys should be like playing hard at the Pro Bowl or an all-star game is ridiculous. It's just for fun. Watch it. Don't watch it. Nobody cares. But I guess on that same token, I will I will talk about the kids today um, because I am I am I'm doing some coaching right now. Coaching uh, my daughter's fourth grade basketball team, co-ed. Um, and I'm not saying this about them because of, of a generational flaw. I'm sure this was true of my generation if I was a group of fourth graders. Um, but I'm finding it very hard. And one, I was not prepared for how little these children intend to listen to me at every practice and game. They have no intention of it. Um, they, they arrive. I have to make them listen to me, which I was not prepared for. I thought there would be, they would give me that, like, minimum benefit of the doubt. I'm an adult. They're at basketball. They'd show up for basketball practice, kind of expecting to basketball it up, run, do some drills. Like, that That would be, like, a baseline expectation they would have, and they didn't, they didn't have that at all. They definitely, the expectation was they'd come in and do absolutely whatever the fuck they wanted um, for an hour, and, that, and it's my job to make that not the case. Um... And that's been hard, really, you know. It was like, oh, okay. I got to earn this. I got to earn their respect. Um, And then I'm also wondering, I don't know about the other dads out there. Like, I I feel like, I can't tell if I'm doing the bare minimum or going above and beyond. Like, I feel like I'm going way above and beyond. I mean, I'm, I'm online looking up drills. I have an approach for every practice. I'm trying to, like... You know, I was like, we had a first game, we got killed. I'll be honest with you, we got killed. We lost 32 to 12, but I was proud of my team. We got down 16 to nothing. And then, you know, outscored 16 to 12. You know, once we got our bearings, once we got used, this was a very good team, very talented kids, much more prepared to get out there and play than our guys. But I watched the game. I was like, oh, we need to work on this. We need to do this. Next practice, had some drills for the things that I saw. Then, like, really stress some game situations. Real Notice some things about the way they're playing. They're taking shots from nowhere. No one's trying to get to the basket. All that kind of stuff. So I'm thinking about it. And I don't know. Is that what people do? Is, is it? It's But it's more work than I thought. I'm at practice. I have, like, a plan. Then in the game, I'm, like, thinking through. Who we putting in? Who we getting in? How are we going to make sure we don't get killed? Everybody want, I want everybody to play and have a good time. But I also want, don't want us to just get stomped. That's no fun. They're not going to want to keep going. That's the case. So is this it? Is it this hard? Is it this much work for everybody? Or am I am I going above and beyond? Because I feel like I'm working my butt off out there. Working my ass off at this, with this team. <laughs> and I can't get anywhere. Can't get them to listen or care. And... I don't know. You know, it's like anything. You think you have an idea of, you know, it's like when you're going to be a parent and you have all these thoughts about how you would, what you're going to do. And you're reading the books and, and you're like, oh, Mike, I'm not going to let them eat sugar or 
they're going to watch screens at various times or I'm, they're going to only eat you know adult meals and and I, you have ideas right i'm i'm not going to my kid's not going to have a binky when he's 3 or we're going to go to bedtime's going to be this and then you have kids and realize you don't that's not the way it works they tell you much more and you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you don't know and you don't get to have ideas about things before you've ever done them and i do feel like coaching you know i've been coached by many different types of people and found things effective or not effective but i've never coached myself and you realize okay no i get it yeah i get why i get why the hard ass approach is tried and true like why here we are 2022 there's still like hard ass coaches out there because one it is work to be done kids don't want to do work no one wants to do work but kids really don't want to so it's hard so that approach always works and i'm sure there's probably other ways now that we know better to get kids motivated and engaged and interested and it doesn't have to all be like you know old school drill sergeant style but i understand why that has not gone anywhere because it's quick it, it's right to the point i can go that i can go to that register with my voice and my face and you can get them lined up and if you don't want to go that route it's actually more work you got to really you got to really want to you got to put the work in you got to come up with other strategies because they're not going to just show up and line up at the baseline and do the drills when you explain the drills there's going to be one kid raising hand want to go to the bathroom one kid uh, gonna make some really terrible joke um and maybe you don't want to laugh at it i don't want to laugh at it i don't like laughing at bad jokes um especially annoying bad jokes that kids tell when i'm trying to get them to do something else um you know what's a really annoying kid joke that they'll make to adults is when you use a metaphor and they take it they pretend to take it literally and then start laughing you know like i was trying to teach them at dribbling and i was saying that dribbling is like treading water in a pool and it keeps you alive right otherwise you'll drown so you got to keep treading that water and that's dribbling you want to keep that dribble alive because it, once you stop you're dead and you know some kid raises his hand dead and they die you know like no obviously you don't literally die as we all know i get it and they all chuckle and then they all laugh at it which is annoying because it's not funny and i don't appreciate it and it's not amusing and those are i don't like those jokes and kids do that a lot they love that joke um which i get because you know you, you know you know the other hard thing is i was i was a total wise ass like i probably made that joke many times that exact concept of joke to an adult who probably hated it and I'm sorry, whoever you were, if you're hearing this now and you were on the receiving end of that kind of really obnoxious joke from me, um, I'm sorry. Um, and I'm sorry to my coaches and my parents. <laughs> you know, this is, I've been thinking this recently, like you, you can't understand having kids until you have them. And yet you think you do. And maybe you had, you had, maybe you had a strong appreciation for your parents, maybe you didn't. Maybe you thought it was all easy. 
everybody goes through it though when you when you first have children and you're like oh my god and let's say you have more than one you're like oh my god i can't believe how hard this is and you have infants you're like this is the hardest thing ever and you're maybe you're calling your parents you're like oh my god i'm sorry i didn't realize this is hard and they're like yeah then you know and because even then you think you get it you're like i get it now how hard it is having kids and they're like yeah no you get it you get one part of it you get how hard it is to have an infant and then you start having toddlers and you're like oh my god oh my god i can't believe the effort that i'm putting into this i can't believe how much of my myself i'm i'm this take how much of out of me it is taking to do this and you call your parents again when they're toddlers and you're like oh i get it now now i got it like and they're like yeah no sure you sort of get it you get how hard it is to have a toddler and it never stops that then you have middle school kids and you're like you're gonna be like oh my god how much that takes out of you and then when they're in high school and how much how much you it takes how much you have to give how much you have to give and this is to show them a good time you know forget even when it's actually hard maybe they're struggling with something this is like a day like it was like a saturday i went saturday we went to american dream that mall in the meadowlands and we went to the mirror maze or something and then we played mini golf and then we went ice skating and it was a nice fun day but but i took something out of my soul that day going from one thing to another everything seemed to go poorly the ice skating they didn't they you know we had to get the things that you didn't i mean the mirror maze my son they turned off the lights for a little while he got scared he ran into one of the mirrors he hit his head they were riding around these little bikes that you can rent these little animals that are like little cars that you rent at the place and you can drive all around but they're running into everybody and mini golf was packed it took two hours it was my son's running in the next hole by the end of the day i mean i'm ready for just a glass of scotch neat just drown it you know like and just empty empty as my body is empty um and then you're and that's when that's when i was thinking my parents had four kids how often they had to have, you know, how many saturdays my dad had that just oh, i got nothing there's nothing in this tank it's empty <laughs> how many sundays just oh my god and then to, you realize you're never going to stop calling them up and telling them yeah well i get it now and they're like yeah you get it now but then they're going to get married and it just never ends and you realize it's never it's never going to end but the flip side is you know it's uh it takes all your life, all your energy, everything out of you. And yet then there's never enough time. At the same time, my babies, my daughter's turning 10. My babies, my babies are gone. I look at old pictures of my son. He's three. He's adorable. I miss him so much. I miss that little guy. I miss the three-year-old version of him. The six-year-old version of him is like every second with him. I can feel it sometimes. This is like a precious jewel right now. I How I am going to, the way I am going to long for him in the exact state he is right now have moments when we'll spend a day we'll do something take him to play basketball together or something or just hang out on the couch and you know curl up and you're like this i know that every second that is ticking by right now is like a absolute precious jewel that i have to i have to take it in and you have to take those moments too to like oh my god it's gonna be over so fast 
It's going to be over so fast. It's already... My kids aren't babies anymore. They're six. They're nine. My daughter's about to be ten. No more babies. No more strollers. No more car seats. And that's great. It's nice, but... There's things you miss. Stuff is over. It's already over. My precious babies. <laughs> and it's good. Every then the next phase, it's all good, too. Like... You get into now, we're getting into sports and coaching teams, and it's fun. My son's a lunatic athlete, loves it. I can't wait to watch him. I'm gonna watch every game he ever plays with every one of them, is like a gift, and I know that. And yet, but at the end of a Sunday night, the end of one of these weeks, when you're just drained, you just can't believe it sometimes how much, how much they've pulled out of you relentlessly. So, just Relentless pressure that they apply. Um, but, you know, that's the uh, that's the trick of life, isn't it? Um, it's all these things that feel terrible, they're hard, and yet you'd miss them when they're gone. Um, but my last topic, um, still only have a few more minutes. One thing that will be gone soon that we won't miss are... Masks, apparently. Getting rid of the mask mandates in Hoboken, they got rid of them. Um, in schools, New Jersey, where I live, they're getting rid of it starting in March. Um, they're going to unmask the kids in school, which I think is wonderful. I can't wait. And um, that's going to be great for the kids. And truly great that the unmask our kids people will be gone, too, hopefully. Because um, <laughs> I hate those people. And I hate them so much. Um, and I'm not saying I don't understand it. I get it. Children are low risk. It is a, it's a, it's a lot to watch your kids sit in eight hours at school in a mask. I get it. It's a big deal. It's a big thing. I don't agree with the people who trivialize it and say, what's the big deal? And it's a big deal. We're asking all our kids eight hours a day to sit in a room with a mask on. It's a big deal. Okay. It's a big deal. But. I also think when we just had this wave where there's cases exploding, the idea that anybody is criticizing people for having children trying to stop the spread in schools or that because my personal risk is low, because I'm vaccinated and boosted, that that absolves me of any collective risk. I think we're all nuts. I don't understand why nobody adjusts their COVID opinions to the case levels, they whether they're high or low, everybody thinks the same thing. <laughs> when they're high and they're going up, we do this. When they're down and going down, we do this. Why is that not everybody's default? We now know that there's peaks and valleys. It's not always one thing. But when they're going crazy, hey, we got to all work together to slow that down. Because people die at an alarming clip. And maybe your personal risk is low, so you could feel comfortable going to a restaurant or whatever. But the collective risk is super high. And we've just been seeing periods again, we're talking about 3,000 people dying a day. 900,000 people have died total, and it's way more than that. It's probably over a million at this point. A million dead people. So whenever you say like math scores went down, that's terrible, it's bad, and people shouldn't trivialize it. It's a big deal, it's real, it's meaningful, okay? But we really don't know 
how big a deal that's going to be. And kids might make that ground up much faster than we think. And it might not mean that much in the long run. We really don't know. Those dead people are dead. They're not coming back. And there's a million of them. And it's a cascade. And forget a million dead, millions of hospitalized people. That's a lot of trauma, okay? Hospitalized. That's a lot of people now with chronic illnesses. That's millions of people. So don't act like it's crazy to try and, and, and the schools exploded with cases. Teachers getting it, people getting it. There's nothing wrong. I had no problem during the Omicron wave with my kids going to that school in a mask. And now it's coming down. And now I agree. In March, I'd love to see them not. We don't need it. They've been vaccinated. They don't need those masks right now. So don't take vindication because now they're going away because now they should go away. And don't yell at people who were saying they should be there three weeks ago because they should be there three weeks ago. <laughs> That's the way it works. You change based on the facts on the ground, which makes perfect sense. And I don't know why no one, it's like bizarro to me that everybody's having a conversation as though this thing has been the exact same the entire time when it's been constantly changing. So when cases are exploding, hey, keep a mask in your pocket. Mask up most of the time. When they're going down, there's not much risk. You've been vaccinated. Do whatever the hell you want. That's how it should be. But to expect, be like, why isn't it normal? When there's 3,500 3, people dying a day, why would it be normal? That's not normal. If 3,500 people start dying a day on the roads in car accidents, I would probably keep my keys in the drawer. Be like, you know, I don't think I'm driving today. Something's going on. <laughs> wouldn't, you wouldn't just be like, ah, fuck, hell up. Uh, fuck it. I'm getting in the car. I'm going to act normal. No, it wasn't normal. It wasn't a normal period. 3,500 people dying daily. A million people dead. Three years. It's an absurd, 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 absurd number. There's a collective interest in trying to keep cases low when they are getting really high. So I, if you were unmasked kids, you got what you want. And I'm glad too. I can't wait to get rid of them. We all can't wait to get rid of them. There was nothing wrong with them a month ago. It made total sense. Absolute sense. And it makes total sense now to get rid of them. Total sense. Because vaccines, again, adjust based on the conditions. Okay? That's all I ask of anybody. It's not one or the other. This thing has been peaks and valleys. When it's, when that, when situation is one thing, we do one thing. When it's raining, you wear you bring an umbrella. When it stops, you put it away. That's it. So you don't you don't bring an umbrella you know every single day because it rained all week last week, but if it's raining today and they're calling for rain all the rest of the week, you might just keep it in your bag because you know what? It's supposed to be in and out and there's a lot of rain in the area and we don't know exactly. <laughs> so I might just pack it. And then when they're calling for clear skies and it looks like as far as the eye can see, hey, leave it in, a, leave it in your apartment. Don't worry about it anymore. So I don't understand why nobody seems to, that seems logical to me and, and yet it seems to be the opinion of almost nobody. That that's how we should be handling this thing. Um, all right, everybody, that's it for me today. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. Um, next week uh, we'll be back with Scott, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll the Knicks will have made some exciting trades, and uh, hopefully the Giants won't be getting sued for being racist, and we can have a uh, a fun time. All right, thanks everyone. <laughs>